Welcome to the Healthcare Excellence Through Technology podcast. Designed by the healthcare industry for the healthcare industry, subscribe to stay up to date with the latest in digital health developments to help you on your digital transformation journey. Hello everyone, I'm Emma Fell, Head of Content for Healthcare Excellence Through Technology, and welcome to today's talk on Becoming Frontline Ready. This is the first in a series of podcasts and webinars supporting the healthcare community to navigate our evolving healthcare landscape. Today, our panel of the best experts will be able to offer some insight into what frontline roles will look like in the upcoming weeks and months in response to COVID-19. They will be considering scenarios for training and changes in team structure, as well as the necessary new ways of working in both acute and non-acute care settings and the expected impacts of these on the patients and clinicians. We will also be directing you to some of the tools and resources available and upcoming to support you through these processes. Our first speaker and moderator, Alistair Smithies, is Head of Educational Innovation for the Institute of Global Health Innovation at Imperial College London. He is the module co-lead on the NHS Digital Academy. Joining him will be Dr. Neil Ralph, Head of TEL, or Technology Enhanced Learning at HEE. TEL is delivering digital learning resources through HEE eLearning for Healthcare, driving the application of simulation-based education, immersive technologies, and video. Neil is currently part of the training development team on boarding clinicians at the Nightingale Hospitals. We also have Sarah Gidhue, who is an advanced clinical practice program manager at HEE and a former critical care nurse who will be offering some insight and perspective on expected impacts of working at this level of crisis acute care, as well as steps to take to manage both yours and your team's well-beings. We are also joined today by Sandy Bansal, CEO of Medic Creations, a former and returning clinician and an expert in driving technology and innovation across healthcare settings. Finally, David Cox, who has recently CCT'd and works as a consultant neonatologist at Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trust. He is doing a topple fellowship in digital healthcare through HEE with a particular focus on using educational technologies to deliver strategies and resources for rapid remote upskilling of clinicians. Thank you everyone for taking the time out to join us today. Our speakers will be answering questions at the end of the discussion. Um, listeners can add any questions you have to the Q&A function and there is opportunity to vote up questions you like and we'll get to as many as possible. I'm now going to pass over to Alistair. Thank you, Alistair. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Alistair Smithies. Um, thank you, Anna, for the introduction. Um, so today what we're looking at really is, is the implications of this unprecedented demand for healthcare um, and the implications that that has from a technological perspective. So within health, we have huge um, systems teams supporting the frontline um, and those frontline staff also um, have access to many, many systems to manage patients through their, uh, through their journey in the healthcare system. So today, what, what we're going to be looking at really, and the scope of this webinar is just to cover off uh, some of the challenges that new entrants to the healthcare system will face, and some of the challenges that those returning to frontline duty will face also. So we have two cohorts of people coming into the system, firstly, who are inexperienced in, uh, in practical terms, um, who are just finding their feet in the system and learning how to navigate their way around this 
suddenly complex and very rapidly changing environment and landscape. But we also have those who are returning to practice who may have taken some time out, may have retired, um, who may have been practicing in, um, in their own specialties for many years and suddenly are faced with the challenge of returning to healthcare um, and entering a very acute setting. Um, this is particularly the case where those who are returning have been asked to come and work in the Nightingale centres that have been set up literally in, in the last two to three weeks um, as massive hospitals. Um, and never have we had to build on that scale before with such a rapid implementation of technology. So all of these factors really create a, a, a huge challenge from a technological point of view. Um, and I'd just like to uh, draw our panelists today um, into the conversation about that and, and what their experiences have been. We have some practicing clinicians here. We have people who are uh, running technology companies who are joining, rejoining the service. Um, and we also have uh, people who are upskilling the workforce and developing resources to support that re-entry or new entry. Um, so let's, let's begin with um, just if I can direct some uh, questions to David, first of all. You're, you're, um, you're practicing at the moment. Do you want to talk, David, about some of the challenges that you've encountered? Thanks, Alistair, and I hope everyone can hear me. So good afternoon, everyone, um, and for particularly anyone who's working in the health service at the moment, a big, big thank you for me. It's, it's a very, very complex time, and it's an incredibly challenging time. Um, I think everyone can appreciate that. It's also a very odd time in terms of there are some areas of the health service where still, despite everything going on, quite a lot of the stuff seems to be business as usual when in the very next ward, clearly it is an extreme scenario which we will never see again in our lifetime. So the pulls and the complexities are enormous and really challenging. With regards to what we're seeing, so we are inevitably seeing there being a focus on treating and managing patients presenting with either a likelihood or a confirmed diagnosis of COVID-19. And as is public health advice at the moment, we are seeing the people coming into hospital being the sickest of those people likely to need high levels of support and certainly there was an escalation to make as many beds as possible into intensive care or high dependency beds where these people can receive the supportive care they need. Developing teams and support services is a real challenge but actually so far the NHS I think has risen to it amazingly. And some of the complexities lie in the kind of people and the kind of roles that are changing and how we're asking people to adopt new roles. Some of the stuff that I've seen, you can categorise in four ways. So some people are doing the same role in the same place, just obviously with a cohort of patients now being very sick with COVID-19, where they need experience and they need support in managing the disease. So they need to know about the disease epidemiology, clinical manifestations and best treatment practices. Other people are doing sim uh, similar roles, but in different places. So people seconded to the Nightingale, for instance. And again, they need support in terms of learning about their new environment. And certainly the team structures there are very different than they might have in their normal workplace. And that's a challenge. Then you have people performing different roles within the same place. 
And what we've seen is a lot of redeployment within our organization and people actually being very, very bold and offering to work across different specialties or different tasks, which weren't in their primary training. And I think that's incredibly brave. And so I really salute them, but they need a lot of support because it's really unfamiliar territory. And the last and possibly most extreme of all is obviously when you're doing a different role in a different place. And I know because of this crisis, we have, we have seen people redeployed from our organisation to other institutions or other places and asked to perform a different role. And so we need to be supporting all of these people. And that includes, Alistair, as you said, the people who've come back either from retirement or people being fast-tracked into the system from lower levels, as well as the people moving in different directions already working in the system. Thank you. And in terms of um, the, the, the kinds of support that we're providing, it's, it's really critical to think about not only the, the kinds of skills support that you're providing to people, but also the, the health, uh, the mental health support and the, and the social support around that. So um, dealing with uh, rapidly deteriorating patients in acute care, um, end of life care, um, working in acute settings it can be quite a big step change really isn't it it's it's a massive clinical step change to work in those kinds of environments mm -hmm. absolutely so I work in intensive care albeit with very tiny people but I have lots of friends and colleagues who work in intensive care with adults as well it sounds like it is taking a huge physical and emotional strain in terms of the physical strain is the hours the shift that people have been asked to work but also just the fact that we've had unseasonably warm weather at the moment. People, these are full red areas, which means that people are being asked to don significant amounts of PPE for a large proportion, if not all of their day. That's exhausting. And then there was the clinical caseload. And the clinical caseload is, it's really sad. It's heartbreaking at times in terms of noticing that despite best efforts, sometimes we don't have the staff and resources that we'd like. And also some of the battles that you won't win, i.e. the patients who will sadly pass away. And they're the patients that you wouldn't normally expect to be on intensive care wards. And they're the kind of patients that you wouldn't normally expect to be passing away. And that takes a huge toll. So how we protect each other, I think, will be absolutely fundamental, not just through the crisis, but probably at the end of the crisis as well, seeing how we pick the pieces back up of the health system, which, which will undergone a, a massive change. Thank you, David. I'm going to bring in uh, Sandeep now, um, who's, who's a returning um, clinician. Uh, he's, he's running his technology company, uh, which supports communication between uh, clinical teams. Um, and he's going to talk a little bit about his experience of, of joining, uh, of rejoining the service and what, what that means in practice. Um, obviously, there are a lot of organisations involved in bringing people uh, in, in ensuring that people are fit and safe to practice. Um, and that presents its own challenges in, in validating uh, medical experience in, in terms of practice. But Sandeep, can you talk a little bit about the process that you've been through and what that, what that means to you and how you felt about uh, rejoining? Yeah, absolutely, Alistair. Um, so obviously I haven't gone back into clinical medicine yet. We're still going through that process, but um, it was fairly fairly simple, you know. Immediately when obviously COVID happened, um, and was announced that you know they might need that support from 
from returning staff members or retired individuals. Um, I looked up how to go about that. Um, the NHS had already spun up a website um, to, to register. Um, a week later, I'm getting another email to say, look, here's a link. Can you please um, put in your documents here? So passport for a DBS check. Um, and I got a call as well, um, you know, to check my CV, to check my address, my passport. Um, and then they checked where I'd be happy to work. Um, and of course, I think, you know, Nightingale is, is a place where um, they're really looking for staff members right now. Um, so that's one of the areas that I might be deployed into. But then obviously a couple of other hospitals were asked where I might be comfortable in going. And for me, that was the hospital, the last hospital that I worked, which was Milton Keynes Hospital, as I'm very familiar with the staff still there, despite having left clinical medicine about four and a half years, five years ago. Um, but it is daunting, you know, don't get me wrong. Um, if I'm having to, the Nightingale is an ITU based area. I practice as a clinician, as a GP. Um, in my rotations, I never had ITU. Um, the closest thing to that I had was probably A&E, you know. Um, so possibly having to do ITU tasks and having to upskill myself after five years out of clinical medicine, that is daunting. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And in terms of the work that is, is going on with the, the Nightingale hospitals, I'm sure many of the people listening today will be interested uh, to hear about the work that is, is going, to, going on to uh, equip that hospital and to bring people online, to bring those hospitals into, into use. It's, you know, we, we see the coverage on the news and we see these big infrastructure projects, but there's a lot more to bringing an entire hospital online than simply building it. It's, it's bringing all those staff in, bringing, uh, building the teams, as you, as you mentioned. And, um, and it, it's, there's, there's a huge amount of work going on in the background. Neil, I'm going to bring you in here. Uh, just to talk about some of the organizations that are involved in bringing everything online um who who's involved in this it's a massive piece of work isn't it let me give you some insights thanks alistair and, and just before i do that i think just like um david does i i said i will take an opportunity to say thank you to everybody who um uh, who's joining this call who is involved in the delivery of frontline care or is um, looking to be as part of being one of the volunteers going back into practice or leaving um, training early to go to the front line so thank you ever so much. Um, Alistair I think I might approach this by talking around what I'm seeing going on at a national level and then converge down onto sort of how that looks in terms of the last two and a half weeks as teams have come over to create a hospital from scratch down at the um, Docklands in London, which is being replicated with the other Nightingales around the country. Um, <clears throat> for, for, for the last three weeks, month or so, um, there has been quite an astonishingly rapid um, coming together of all key organisations across the system that enable us to have a workforce in place or to manage there being a workforce in place and support their workforce across the arm's length bodies like the one i work for health education england as well as nhs england and nhs improvement they've mobilized um, the 
um, sort of critical instant response structures that are activated to enable us to deal with a pandemic crisis in this country. That pulls together all of the professional bodies, all of the regulators to work together to identify how can we rapidly create systems and processes that can enable people, for instance, come back into practice to be given um, temporary registration and license to practice to understand roles, responsibilities and the parameters of their scope of practice, but to enable people to come out of training early as well. And one of the things that I've noticed within all of that is not just about how do the systems and processes need to be able to work, how do we deploy digital technologies to accelerate those processes as well, facilitate that to happen at scale, but also built into that conversation is how do we do this in a way where we support people to be able to cope with what's being asked of them too. So in parallel has been the development of an infrastructure around putting in support mechanisms in place. So this week we had the launch of the NHS England support service, which will provide support into trust, but also has an app and there's a helpline, which is a collaboration with charities for people to be able to call where they need to reach out and ask for some help. And there's also additional infrastructure being put in place in terms of, for instance, I, I talked specifically around Nightingale hospitals, that support services is fundamental to the safe ongoing operation that's going to be um, that is in place now at the front line and it will continue to build um, in, in so we've got those are two working parts the onboarding of people the support to make sure that we're doing what we can to help people feel equipped and supported to be able to practice safely and a big role in helping people feel confident and competent when they are faced with often very challenging clinical situations that are forcing them to work at the top or sometimes stretching that sort of scope of practice um, in a very high stress situation, often dressed in full PPE, so working in a way that they're not necessarily familiar with. That in itself has meant a coming together of organisations across the country to make sure that we've got resources in place to help them so when i think about nightingale that I, I i joined a team of about 20 people who are coordinating how do we understand what that onboarding process is where we need to bring in hundreds of people a day to be brought in to have a uh, corporate induction it's Bart's hospital trust for the excel site to be um, assessed in terms of what role they are best able to deliver through a self-assessment process, through a process of supervision, through a process of triaging towards what educational requirements do you need to support to be able to extend your range of competencies. Our role within that was to provide a curated program of online learning resources which we people were pointed to as early as possible on that onboarding process. So if they could complete as much of that as possible before they get close to needing to see a patient, we're accelerating that process to get them frontline ready. Um, we, in, in terms of the approach we took to that, 
we rapidly work with the team to understand what are the core competencies across the different roles required, medical and other healthcare professional roles, to work within that critical care environment. And we delved into our content library of about 24,000 modules of learning, working with colleagues in the professional bodies like the Royal College of Anaesthetists and the Faculty of Intensive Care Medi Medicine to identify what's the most, what's the really important learning we need to point people to. So they can, we can say, hey, you really need to have done this before you go in, or you need to be aware this is there for you if you want to go and refamiliarize yourself or upskill yourself. We worked uh, uh, alongside that, we worked with colleagues in PHE and in the, um, um, the Resus Council as well to make sure that our content is adapted to be relevant for people working with COVID positive patients because it had to be uh, appropriate for the clinical work they're doing and adapted to make, make sure it was to make sure that we're making, we're putting out stuff that's safe for people to consume. Um, so that, on, that, that, that onboarding piece has been a fascinating journey and, and, and um, aligned to that has been um, conversations around how we streamline things like statutory mandatory training. What's the minimum that people need to be able to do so their organisation they're going into is assured that they're sufficiently up to date? Um, so we published a streamlined Statman programme that's being used in, in the Nightingales around the country, but also other organisations are adopting this as well as they're bringing in people who have been previously, you know, re retired out of practice, for instance, to, to, to speed up that process of onboarding. Now, with it, I'm bouncing around a bit, but with regard to the Nightingale um, workforce, we've tried to enable them to do as much as they can online. Um, but what we identify is that there are some things that you can sort of go partially, uh, we can address partially online, but there needs to be some face-to-face -face training as well. So the Nightingale hospitals around the country are, have rapidly pulled together training faculty, drawing upon fabulous support from people working in the higher education institutions, as well as faculty working in simulation centres and other medical education teams as well. And if you're doing a rolling program of say 100 people coming through and they are through their induction, their training day, they're moving around to a multitude of um, simulation stations, for instance, you know, around PPE, around resuscitation, around intubation and proning and all of these very necessary areas that people need to feel confident that they can cope with. You need a huge team of people around you to support that activity. And in terms of London, that's meant people who can rapidly design educational programs, who can write the scripts, people who are effectively able to deliver those, um, having being able to bring in all the resources required as well to deliver on a, a massive training program at scale that, that's pulled together very, very rapidly. So what, what, what you get is, in fact, as much as I was part of, I think, of a team about a 20-odd originally, it's more of a team of over 100 people delivering training in a sustainable fashion towards building up a workforce of a few thousand people that need to work in the Nightingale Hospital as, we, as, as more and more patients need to come in, more and more beds are opened up. And that's, that's a blend of both, both clinical skills and kind of um, also the, the, the kind of donning and doffing, all of the... Um, 
systems training that is required to work with the electronic health record systems that are being implemented. So there's such a broad range of different skills that are being drawn upon and, and are needed. David, maybe you could talk a little bit about the kinds of systems that people would be interacting with on a, um, in, in these environments. Yes, it's a lot and you can well imagine how people can very easily get overwhelmed quite quickly. The, the core infrastructures of any hospital are normally around health records and electronic health records. So one of the quickest things to do is to try and get on board about the electronic health records so they can see and they can understand. But the other things are the education kind of facets they need. Neil has discussed in depth about some of the different challenges around education, particularly with upskilling people going to different areas. And as I touched upon before, whilst it's very easy just to think about people moving to locations such as the Nightingale, which they haven't worked in before, where many of these kind of issues will be exacerbated their greatest, there are also significant issues with people working in trusts in unfamiliar roles, working uh, back in the community if they've not done so before. The systems are really different. So for a GP returning to practice, um, for example, a retired GP who might work with NHS 111, there'll be a whole heap of different systems. Then there will be a orthopedic registrar who may be seconded into intensive care. So it's really difficult to generalise. But what we can do and what we're trying to do is we're trying to classify and compartmentalise the different areas where they might need to be aware of where there might be educational and system support for them. So, for example, we can think of seven or eight facets, which would be common across most of the walks that we'd see. And again, apologies, what I'm going to talk about now are mostly going to be at the medical or nursing or AHP interface rather than necessarily all the other system support that we get for porters, cleaners, carers, everyone else who is just as vulnerable in this situation. So we can think about learning and education needing to be delivered about understanding the virus and its clinical manifestations. And this is really key. Um, sorry. <laughs> this is really key because if you don't know what you're looking for, then actually we'll end up triaging people falsely or wrongly and actually that will clog up the system or it will miss critical index cases, which is a real risk. Then there's the stuff about understanding transmission and personal and patient protection. And again, really fundamental, wherever you're working, however you're working, understanding what you need to do to protect both the patient and yourself, which is key, I think is absolutely critical. We can actually push out some learning on that. Then there's the stuff about the diagnostics. Now we've all heard a lot about testing for healthcare workforce and frontline staff we've talked about testing for patients as well but understanding local processes about what's happening in your area about testing as well as the national movements are going to be really fundamental to working where you are on an everyday basis and actually being able to not only work with patients but also for a staff to support a system because we've seen in our practice many many kind of healthcare professional colleagues have to go off sick, self-isolate, waiting for testing, not knowing how that's going to be performed and how that's going to come about. So for people to understand what's going on in their local environment, it's critical. And that's before we even touch base on what I think of four very critical areas, which I'll touch on really, 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 really quickly, which is then patient support, which is different in primary care to HDU and ITU facilities or even to kind of general medical care in hospitals. And then critical things such as patient care and 
communication, particularly around the patients which might be palliated and around end of life diagnoses. That's so challenging, but we see people really needing system support. Team working staff management, that has all changed. So there have been some really good guidance, but the way that teams normally work, even within ITU scenarios, is radically different. So there needs to be some learning and some system support about how you literally work within a team in the front line. And the last thing critically is that patient well, the kind of personal well-being for, um, for staff that we talked about. So a whole heap of stuff. With regards to systems, it will be different. So it's difficult to articulate precisely what's going to happen in any one area. But essentially, those are the seven or eight kind of key areas that people need to start to be exploring what's going on at both a national and a local level in order to understand how they can best participate and work. Alistair, can I jump in there? If you don't mind? Yeah, sure. So um, what, one of the things that we know is, is, is um, quite anxiety provoking and challenging for people going into critical fare environments, particularly if they're unfamiliar or, or even if they're being moved from one environment, say, uh, one of uh, 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 an existing trust into a Nightingale hospital is they may get faced with a whole range of ventilators, for instance, they're not familiar with. Um, so as much as we've been thinking around how do we make sure we've got access to sort of uh, how people might deliver skills, people need access to, to, to knowledge about the equipment that they're using. So we've been working with some of the organisations that are part, well, the organisation's part of the, the, the ventilator initiative, the consortium around making sure we've got sufficient ventilators in place. We talk to them about acquiring and or developing training videos just so they're on hand as part of our package of learning for people to dip into and also relevant for other bits of equipment that people are coming across to because that's what people need right at the point of at the point of need they may need to check on something they may need to something happens they may need about to go into environment double check just to get that bit of familiarity and confidence with the equipment that they're going to have to use yeah um, yeah, sure, David. Yeah, no, I was just going to I was going to echo that, and I think what we're seeing is the need, as Neil has touched upon, for the just-in-time learning and how we strategize that across across both the local and the national system is a real challenge. And I know that there's work going on. It, um, I think, the fundamental is to understand the taxonomy of what people need, and then start working out how we deliver that. And I think the nice thing coming into one of the core things about this webinar is obviously how digital can support that. Because I think the other problem that we're seeing in real life practice is that with social distancing measures and everything else, it is not like we can do things as we did before, which is sit 20 or 30 people in a room and give them a single de uh, demonstration. So how can we use new technologies to actually disseminate that information the use of videos, the use of online learning, the use mm -hmm. of kind of simulations in remote aspects or even gamification. Absolutely. All of these we can start to lean upon where we've possibly not needed to in, in the kind of large scale before. That's, that's a great point. Um, and just to build on that, I think I'll bring Sandy um, online here to just talk a little bit about what, what he's been working on um, and the kinds of initiatives that uh, he's, he's working on in, in mobile terms. Sandeep, can you talk a little bit about the future direction of technology for, for healthcare? Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, David. It's a really good point that you brought up there around technology and that um, being used for education, for uh, managing staff and helping with social distancing. So 
I'll talk a bit more broadly about how the NHS has started to tackle some of these issues already. Um, as we saw about two weeks, three weeks ago, there was a procurement of um, telemedicine platforms um, across the country um, and Microsoft Teams rolled out to help with virtual consultations um, so that um, consultants, GPs, primary care could deliver consults um, via, via video calls basically um, and not needing the, the patients to, to come in to, to clinics and, and to their you know to the hospital. So that was a that was a great initiative and I think we've seen a massive massive rise in um, telemedicine happening. Um, then I, I think there's other other challenges so you know you've got let's say um, infrastructure challenges so Nightingale project is a is a great example of what has happened in the NHS when it comes to technology. I think um, a telecoms provider built the Wi-Fi infrastructure and 3G infrastructure in two days at the Nightingale and then Cerner as we all know um, you know a deployment from the Bart's Health as an extension uh, the EHR was deployed in, in a similar sort of time frame from what I understand Neil can probably tell, tell a little bit better than me on, on that. Um, so a lot, uh, a lot of the technology is happening very, very quickly now. Um, from my end, what are we doing? You know, so I'll give you um, some of the pain points and the challenges. So communication is, is a critical part, as David said, um, in, in the clinical environment at the moment. So to give you a high level figure, there's about a billion internal phone calls um, in the NHS, just in the hospitals alone a year. That's on a normal that's on a normal uh, that's in a normal year now with covid we're expecting that to have risen by about 30 50 70 percent yeah um and of course we've been using pages um for a long long time um in the nhs 70 years so the work that we've been doing with west suffolk has been around replacing the pager technology with an instant communication solution that sits on people's own devices um, from an infection control perspective, actually, that's that's weirdly seen as better because you know nurses and doctors aren't having to go to landlines and and pick up the the communal um, uh, phones, um, and they've got the their own bacteria or um, uh, you know germs on their own device rather than spreading it out anywhere else. Um, so we're using the bring your own device um, policy to make that happen. Um, that sort of technology is saving about 21 minutes every, for every single nurse, every single shift, and 48 minutes for every junior doctor. Um, and that was obviously peer-reviewed. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, um, Matt Hancock then asked for ban on pages. But for that to happen, you need a lot of infrastructure in place as well. You know, you need the right Wi-Fi, 3G, 4G capabilities. You need devices. And so I know there's a lot of work happening with telecom providers. Um, to make that happen across the NHS very, very rapidly over the coming months from a Wi-Fi perspective, from an infrastructure perspective. For example, I know um, some companies are rolling out 5G, um, although they're pre-market, but that, is, that rollout has started to happen, for example, to enable that infrastructure. So uh, as, a, as a positive outcome of all this, it's, it's, it's proving to be a huge catalyst for things that would otherwise have taken four years or so to, to spin up. They've been um, developing things in, in four weeks, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, you know, I think 
suppliers and vendors, if you will call them that, um, interoperability has started to really take hold. You know, partnership discussions, which would have taken months to happen with other, other vendors are happening so much quicker. So, you know, an example of a great partnership that I've seen happen is Patchwork and True ID. So obviously Patchwork does great work in bringing bank staff um, into organizations and True ID can help with making sure that they're the right skill set um, of staff going into the right area and that they're validated and all the checks are done so that you know exactly who you're bringing into your organization. Yeah. And, and all of this has happened in the last four weeks. Brilliant. I'm, I'm conscious that um, we, we do have another panelist, uh, Sarah Goodhue, who's, who's joining us. She's an, uh, a practice uh, manager and um, she, she's had a few connectivity issues today, but I'm hoping that she can join in to the conversation and just give um, her perspective on um, what, what, what's going on at the moment and what she's doing from a, what she's observing from a digital perspective in bringing new people online in, into her uh, team. Can you hear me, Sarah? Hello, I can. Can you hear me? Brilliant. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, hallelujah. Sorry, I've had to try and join via my own technology and it's cutting in and out a bit. So hopefully you'll be able to hear me. Yeah. Um, so um, I'm actually a, um, I work for Health Education England. So I'm the programme lead for advanced clinical practice in my region. And I'm a critical care nurse by background and also part of the simulation faculty at our local medical school. So all of those um, skills have very much been um, called upon in particularly the last couple of weeks. And so uh, from a kind of personal journey perspective, I had expected that I would be one of those people that I could hear others talking about on the call about going, going back into the, um, the, the clinical space. But unfortunately, I'm in one of the at-risk groups, so um, I've been advised that that's probably not the best use of my skill set at the moment. So I've very much been contributing to some of the work that Neil has been leading on around creating resources um, and creating um, resources via the e-learning for health platform and via simulation and video to enable those individuals who are either um, refreshing skills that they've already got in the area that they're working in or that significant number of clinical staff who are moving into um, unfamiliar and new clinical spaces to enable them quickly to have the knowledge and skills and um, resources Im immediately available to them in in a way that enables them to 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 um, be able to step up to those new challenges that are particularly being asked of us at the moment. Because the challenge is with those learning resources, how do you enable them to be helpful, mm. credible, timely? Well, we know everything is, is, is moving and changing around us, but in a portable way that you can use them right here and now. Um, and some of that is at, at the at patient's bedside. And some of that is in a quick, bite-sized way that you can um, have your units of learning to prepare you to step into that space. But we've all been really, really um, mindful during that time that that needs to be bite-sized learning. We're very conscious of the cognitive overload that people are going through at this time. So how, how do we enable that learning to be usable and credible and portable 
So I've been very lucky to be part of, of that work that Neil's leading on at the moment. And I can see from colleagues who are in that clinical space that they're finding those resources really, really helpful, particularly that bite-sized learning around video simulation quick guides that you can have. Again, I cut in and out when somebody was talking previously, but on a device that's your device that you can immediately access or on something that's right in front of you at the moment that you need it. So that definitely is um, being very positively received by those who are back in that clinical space and they are contributing to the resources that we're continuing to evolve and build. Thank you, Sarah. That, that's a really valuable point that you make as well about your contribution there. Um, you know, not, not everybody returning to, to practice is, is in a, is, is fit to, is able to practice in the ITU environments or um, in, in, on the wards at the moment. So that is a really valuable contribution to make in terms of uh, delivering educational uh, resources and developing those to help the, to help others with with your experience so that that's really vital everybody has an important role to play as, as one of our other participants mentioned earlier um, so it's 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 joining everybody together and making this happen really isn't it it's it's, it's vital um, Neil do you want to just talk a little bit more about what what um, you, I think you have some slides to put up about the work just to close off um, the, the panellists discussion about what Health Education England has put up. I know also I've been involved in a piece of work for NHS Education for Scotland and they're also hoping to put something um, out uh, shortly but um, we, Neil if you want to talk oh, to this. Sure, can you hear me? I'm on mute. So I often... Yeah, no, you're, you're oh, on Good, mute. good. Sharing my screen and taking off mute um, was all, that's a bit of a challenge for me. Yeah, thank you very much Alistair. I think so uh, Sarah just, just mentioned the sort of the, the, the primary offer, I think, that we've been creating and offering at the system. Um, and this is the COVID learning programme we, we launched um, on the 18th of March on the e-learning for healthcare hub. This is a snapshot of, of a couple of days ago of the range of the packages of learning that we've put on there. But this is expanding on a daily basis. For instance, hopefully today or very soon this week we'll have resources for people working in the area of mental health and learning disability who themselves are still coming across them to deal with COVID positive individuals and have naturally concerns and need, need support. Um, Sarah also mentioned that there are a lot of people benefiting from this and we are seeing that coming through in terms of the numbers of launches of learning. So on the 6th of April we had 42,500 launches of learning Another interesting statistic, maybe the last one of the last things I'll say is that in terms of uh, the number of launches of learning we had in April last year was about half a million for the whole month. As of this morning, so really covering the first eight days of April, we've already got more than that, over half a million launches. So what we're seeing at the moment is a phenomenal acceleration of people consuming content and doing things online. And I see that we will be moving into a new normal around the application of learning technologies and how we support people both in terms of that just-in-time learning when you're on the job, but also how people would be expecting to learn in their study period when they're doing courses. I see coming through on top of traditional e-learning a greater acceleration of the use of immersive technologies 
virtual reality, use of 360 video resources and CGI resources. So that's something we're very keen on in my team to understand how we can best support the system being able to leverage the capability and benefits of that sort of um, those sort of learning technologies. And we're also in the ability in, in the middle of developing a new platform that will eventually replace the eLearn for Healthcare hub called the Learning Hub, still a place to go to, to consume all of our great content, but also building into that the capability for people to share their own resources and collaborate together. And that's another thing I've been seeing going on is a phenomenal um, expansion of the altruism around the system where people have created some use of resources how can they make sure that others can benefit from that as well and we're we're working with our colleagues to keep trying to ensure that that sharing can continue to happen okay i'm i'm conscious that uh, one one or two of our panelists have other um meetings to attend very shortly um sandeep um you you need to leave quite soon um, do you want to take one of the let's let's move into questions now and um, Sandeep do you want to respond to that question that we had in advance do you want to, um, have you got that there um, yes I've got a question here uh, from Hartley yeah uh, so around the question is um, from a patient safety perspective has any type of clinical audit been factored into all of these rapid changes and wholesale transformation to maintain high quality care and therefore outcomes for both our patients and clinicians and practice that can be shared would be greatly appreciated yeah that, that's um, that's a great question you know um so as we're looking to scale up our technology across the nhs um, at the moment we've got two phases of our implementation um the one the first phase is to help manage covid the best that we can so obviously not deploying as many staff members on site to do change management and transformation at all, keep it as light touch as possible. But there will be a project board at every single site that we go to, which will sign off a clinical safety case, knowing what we're walking into, where the risks are, and if we're happy to go live um, with these technologies, um, then we're taking that assessed risk, you know, very much like bringing back clinicians like myself, you know, there's, there's assessed risks here. So we manage that uh, and I'm happy to share what our clinical safety cases look like on this. On this. Um, and then of course, two months, three months, four months down the line, um, when we're over the hump of COVID, then we would look to come in and, um, well, it'll be a continual reassessment of the clinical safety case. But at that point, you would really reassess it and look at how do you now transform the organization around these technologies properly and embed the solution um, because the organization would have gone through a significant change already. So how do you carry that work forward to help manage the post COVID, um, challenges that will exist? Um, so yeah, absolutely. Like, um, patient safety first and foremost, and the clinical safety work from the DCB framework, zero one two nine zero one six zero, doesn't fall away. It still continues. Absolutely. Thank you, Sandy. That's that your participation in this is really uh, greatly appreciated, and uh, that's really uh, great to have you on the call. Um, okay, so we'll go to we'll continue with the questions. There's um, there are quite a few participant questions. There's a lot around um, in-person training and and proximity um, and the requirements to, to to be in an environment where you're kind of sat next to somebody. Um, 
I think that a lot of what I've seen in the NHS over the last few weeks has been that, that they are making, making provisions for people to maintain social distancing in, in many environments. And also, you know, this, as Niels mentioned, I think there is, uh, and others, um, about bringing your own device being a crucial enabler for training to take place in these pressured times in ways that don't involve close contact of, of uh, healthcare staff. Um, so I think there are uh, many efforts being made to ensure that training is not putting staff at risk. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. <clears throat> I, 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 I think every effort is, is made in that respect. I think the um, managing risk in this current situation um, the, in terms of that is a significant emphasis on working within you know using PPE and getting that right and get that right in the different environments that people are in and that Public Health England have really you know been challenged by by this because actually the nature of the coronavirus as you know it, it, as a novel virus um has put in huge challenges but i'm a phenomenal amount of effort has been going in to try and get that right that that's that's for sure and every call i'm on one of the biggest the topic that tends to sort of consume a lot of time is around ppe pp training now when people are going in to be trained in these sorts of environments and david and sarah talk to us with more authority than i can you know they're getting ready to be working on the front line. So in terms of social distancing and isolation, it, it, it kind of goes, you know, it, it, I don't think you can kind of manage the training in that respect. These people need to be a tight knit unit working together in that critical care environment. So a whole new level of rules and, um, and, and procedures are put in place to facilitate that. So that, from my perspective, that link actually, so there are two interesting questions on the Q&A, one from Pauline and one from Lucas. And Pauline's question was about how can we train on different systems, new systems, particularly computer systems, when normally what we would use, obviously, the almost one-to-one -one instructor training, so two people in the close environment demonstrating best use. So I think that's a challenge. Uh, Lucas's question was about well, ICUs, we know they're really busy and they're very stressful, but actually, given the fact that they seem to be well stocked with PPE and there are some clear guidance about red areas and how people work within those, are these part of the safest areas? So the way that these merge is that, so we need to, as Neil has kind of touched upon, reevaluate how we ask people to do their training. Um, and we need to be quite sensitive about thinking how we do that and what resource can be done or what resource still needs to be done face to face because there will always be an element of learning which can only be facilitated by face to face discussion peer review peer support but increasingly there are resources being curated that we've seen which are fantastic online resources in a number of ways which are available remotely which can help remotely and I think we need to be pushing the other thing that Sandeep talked about is how good different commercial vendors and other people in the industry have been about putting resource out there. We need to be requesting whenever a new technology tool or system is used that actually a bit of remote learning is curated with that, which gives guidance because that is going to be the safest way. 
with regards to Lucas's question about is IoT the safest environment well there is no hospital environment at the moment which feels safe and that is unfortunately the slightly damning truth of it yes there are there are times when IT because of all the stringent kind of necessities around environment PPE and everything else can feel safe but I think what everyone is pushing for is actually better knowledge and education so that everyone feels safe because they actually understand that the situation they're in and what they could and should be doing. And that is where Neil touched upon the PP advice, which has come from PHE and how local managers and trusts actually implement that to make sure that it filters down to people working at the different areas in the hospital, which might not be ITU, what they need, what they have, how best to use their resource and how best to practice safely. And also how best to flag up if they feel unsafe, because that goes to the well-being aspect as well. Thank you, David. That's that's really important about working within the zone of, of capability and competence as well. You've got that kind of competence and competence line to uh, to draw really and to maintain um, your practice within that. Um, Neil, just just another couple of questions uh, relating to availability of these resources. E-learning for health, but the hub um, is actually open uh, and accessible by by everybody, pretty much, isn't it? So it's no, that's right, honestly. Yeah, uh, I mean, in terms of the e-learning for healthcare resource, that's um, open to everybody. Um, they can launch. In terms of the COVID program, they can launch that to access the learning content straight away or people can register with any email account to um, to be able to access the learning, learning and record, have a learning record. We've also made it available through our community interest organisation called the Integrity to outside of the UK as well. And there's about 40, 50 countries, no actually no tell life, about 70 countries now where people have registered to access the resource internationally too. Um, there are also a lot of very generous offers of educational resources from commercial organisations out there um, uh, for the often for the space of the next few months. So uh, an organisation that we are that has some learning complementary to us, particularly for nursing and healthcare um, um, assistance is from clinicalskills.net, for instance. But those are often accessed uh, by an at an organisational level with the supplier of that learning. Um, El Silvia, for instance, are making their learning available, a lot, you know, portion of their learning open to, to people to consume. So there has been a phenomenally generous response and we're, there's a huge amount of learning resources out there. One of the ones concerns we've got those about people getting a bit overloaded and confused, mm. uh, which is why we're doing our best to put as much as what we have available into a single place on the e-learning healthcare hub. In our learning there, it's about 50% our own resources, 50% resources from professional bodies, uh, other people in the community who are happy to allow us to link out or to have that content onto our learning, um, into our learning program. But it's available to everybody, Alistair, absolutely. Thank you, thank you, Neil. Um, so I think we've got um, we've got a question from uh, Claire Young there as well uh, in relation to the mental health support for clinical and admin staff working in ITU. What would be the most effective means to deliver this? And what would be the core components of this support? That's a really good question. Um, I think that there are many ways to um, to support uh, mental health um, and 
one-to-one sessions, mentoring. It's it's not just about delivering uh, a package of training. Um, it's about putting in all those infra- all those bits of infrastructure and, and support from a, um, a human resourcing point of view, from a workforce planning perspective, to ensure that there are structures around people, that people are supported in their clinical decision making, for example, that people are supported um, in their practice and that they have appropriate access to support um, at all times. Um, so I think there are, there are many different ways to deliver and support people in practice. Um, Neil, do you want to talk a little bit about the packages that are in development? Or? I, 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 I'll say something very briefly on this. I think the starting place, it, it, it sits within the team. So there are fabulous processes that teams um, can, can follow around making sure that when people come to the end of the shift or part of the handover, there's an opportunities for debriefing, there's opportunities for huddles, so that people within the team are effectively knowing how to support each other, um, so that team leadership and management are understanding kind of where individuals are at and how teams are functioning together, where they're starting to see stress and strain or inner manifestations of stress and strain coming in. And then wrapped around that, there is... um, um support teams in place support teams in place where people can go off and talk to a psychologist or to another mental health professional to get some particular help in situ and then wrapped around that are the things like the national offer from nhs england phone lines apps tips there are tips that we're working on with some of the resources we're doing just to help people know you know understand some of the key things they can be doing to support themselves at very stressful times in in, in their home and personal life i would echo that just coming briefly on that so if you think about it in a kind of three-tier strategy there is prevention so the system should be doing everything that possibly can to support people clearly who we know would be at risk of adverse mental well-being and for the moment that is everyone working on the front line on everyone who is concerned about their own health or the health of others and that is about information that's about education that it's about appropriate ppe appropriate working practices where possible then there's the prophylaxis and that is what individuals can do to look after their own health that is sleep rest exercise there are numerous apps out there which aim to support mental health and well-being. And that is about the personal responsibility to actually trying to take control of your own mental health and well-being. And some of that, as Neil says, can then link into the team responsibility, which is the debriefs, the huddles, the shared learning, all this stuff, which is crucial. And then finally, it's the treatment. So knowing where people can turn when they need support, when they feel that their mental well-being is acutely at risk. Um, and that is there are various different organizations offering support neil has mentioned some of the nhs england work the bma as well as the 24 7 counseling service so just to be aware and i think that lots and lots of places locally as well are actually pulling in support around specifically that aspect as well so just think about those three things prevention the individual prophylaxis and then to treat when the people are at risk or feel themselves getting well thank you so just conscious of time um, we've just got to the end of the, uh, of, the, of the time that we had allocated for this. Um, I think um, it, would be, it would be helpful if, if uh, Sarah and David just could respond to the question, what, what kind of, um, what message would you have for somebody returning to practice, first of all? Um, and maybe just a quick one on 
if you're entering practice for the very first time as an FY1 doctor um, now, what, what would you say to them? What would be your number one piece of advice? Um, I'll go first. I'll get my bits out and then Sarah can be the wise old owl at the end. Um, so the first thing I'd say to them is thank you in terms of we know that the health service is under strain at the moment in across all aspects, across all environments. So thank you for offering your health and support. Do it at your own safety in terms of please do volunteer, please do take part, but make sure you're aware of how you're feeling and make sure that you can protect yourself both physically and your own well-being when you're in that place. The third thing is that think about what you need to be able to work safely and for what you feel you need your skills are. There are resources which we might signpost to at the end of this webinar, but the initial places e-learning for health has got a great content of resource. Have a look at that. Try and identify where your strengths and weaknesses are and then use education as much as possible to try and reassure yourself so you feel comfortable and confident in what you're going to be asked to do. And the last thing is, if there's ever something you don't feel comfortable and confident about, to tell your senior, senior and look after yourself. Thanks, David. There's really important messages there. Sarah? I would echo all of those. I just want to say a huge thank you to anybody who's already playing a part or is thinking about playing a part or is, has friends and family around them who is playing a part. Um, it's a challenging time for all of us. Um, and so the, the being kind to yourself and to the team around you is really, really important. And I would absolutely echo that last comment about being able to identify we all bring a different skill and experience set to whatever we're doing. Um, don't undervalue how many skills you've got, even if you haven't used them recently. But also remember that part that you're playing as much as you might be in a frontline role huge contribution that you're playing of supporting all of those other learners around you and how that support may look slightly different in this time how you can just still be providing support to each other and to the learners around you because that's absolutely invaluable that the looking after self and each other is is crucial as of, as part of all of this at the moment absolutely thank you sarah that's that's really greatly appreciated so we we've uh, we've run out of time today um, we will be posting uh, some resources to support you here um, and you will be able to access the recording of this uh, webinar if you've registered. So um, that's all from me today. A huge thank you to our panellists um, and thank you to everybody out there that is supporting the national efforts in this unprecedented time. Um, it's, it's greatly, greatly appreciated. Yep. Um, I just wanted to jump back on and say and echo that and say a big thank you to all of our speakers today um, and for taking the time to out to prep and deliver this much needed discussion. Um, uh, this and upcoming talks will be available on the HEP podcast, which will be launching soon. Um, so please click the link on uh, that appear, will appear when this webinar ends or in the thank you email to register your interest and to stay up to date on the latest in digital health developments. Um, our next talk, if you're um, keen um, in primary to primary care, um, detail is on the digitalization of primary care in response to COVID-19 and is focusing on remote triage and consultation and will be delivered by Minal Bakayan and um, Trisha Greenlee. So thank you everything for your attention today. Stay safe and, and we'll see you again next time. And thank you to Emma for organizing all this and putting it all together as well. Thank you so much. Oh, no worries. <laughs> thank you everyone. All right.
Bye for now. Thanks, everyone. Stay safe. Bye bye. Take care. Thank you for listening. Sign up to our podcast for the latest digital health developments or visit hetshow.co.uk for the latest info on the HET Live event, as well as news and updates from the best in health tech.